0: to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom.
1: John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his, whole, wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them.
0: Father, thank you very much that we have your word open in front of us. Thank you that you are the speaking God, and we ask you to do what you have been doing forever. Would you speak? Would you bring us your word with living power? Would you talk to us in the depths of our being? that we might see who you really are and who we really are in the face of Jesus. Amen. Uh, So if I'm ever asked into a primary school to do an assembly or that kind of thing, which is sometimes the sort of thing that I I get to do, I'm an Anglican minister, and uh, if I go into a primary school, one thing I like to do is to do a choose-your-own-adventure fairy tale. So I tell the kids, okay, kids, we're going to crowdsource a fairy tale. I'll start you off, and then I'll give you some options, and then we'll see how the fairy tale develops." And they usually think that's quite a good idea. So I start the story off, and I say, uh, in the beginning there was a kingdom of light, and uh, there was a wise king, and uh, there was a princess who was as wise as she was fair, and all the people were very happy. The end. Is that a good fairy tale? And all the kids say, no, that's a dreadful fairy tale. Okay, so what should happen? Should something nice happen or should something difficult happen? Right? And some kids, they haven't cottoned on to the shape of stories. And so they say something nice. (laughs) Fools that they are nice. (laughs) What? (laughs) So I make up something nice. So I say, okay, so the, the king decides to put on a jousting tournament And a shepherd boy from the hills who everybody laughs at, he enters the competition, but you'll never guess, he actually beats all the knights of the realm, and he wins the competition, and the king makes him a knight, and there's a feast that lasts for a week. Is that something happy? Yeah, that sounds good. All right, good, okay. Now, should something nice happen, or should something difficult happen? And by this stage, everybody is bored of the nice things, okay? And everybody says, something difficult. In fact, the last time I did this, a kid from the back said, something evil, I want something evil. All right, okay. Okay, here we go, something evil. All right, the dragon flies in from across the sea, and he snatches the princess, and he carries her back to his lair. Now, what should the king do? Should the king say, "Ah, oh, well, easy come, easy go, you know. Plenty more princesses where that came from. Or should there be a rescue? They say, there should be a rescue. Like, oh, okay. Well, who, who should go to rescue, do you think? And someone has the bright idea. Well, what, what about that, that shepherd boy who became the knight? What about him? Ah, what a good idea. Okay. So then the king puts the knight onto his boat and sends him across the sea. Should it be an easy crossing or should it be a difficult crossing? What do we think? Dif- a difficult crossing. And so then I ask the kids, okay, so what, what kind of monsters should the knight have to battle? And they come up with, you know, triple-headed octopuses and, you know, electric eels and radioactive sharks and all this kind of, you know... And then you say, and, and should it be easy for him to get to the, to the dragon's lair, or should it be difficult? And they say, it should be difficult. And so he has to fight through the fire swamp and climb the cliffs of insanity, and he, he gets to the dragon's lair. And then you say, should the dragon just let the princess go, or should there be a fight? There should be a fight, right? And so you narrate this epic battle between good and evil, and somehow the knight snatches victory from the jaws of defeat, and he manages to, to lock the dragon in the cell that had held the princess. So he rescues the girl, he brings her back on the boat to the kingdom of light and life and love. And then, and then what should be a happy conclusion? What would, be, what would be a happy ending at that point? What do you think should happen? The dragon gets rehabilitated. A very modern tale, <laughs> David Honey. The dragon goes through a 12-step program and deals with his mummy issues and... Uh, realizes that we're all really the same deep down. Um, Has anyone got a better ending than that? Just just asking anyone. What do you think should happen? They get married, married, right? But only if she wants to, right? I mean, (laughs) you know, she's been through a big ordeal, okay? She'll have all sorts of complicated feelings about her captor, but, you know... If after a lot of counseling again if she if she wants to marry them then they get married and they all live happily ever after the end that's that's the that's the best story right that's that's kind of that's kind of every story isn't it every story that ever resonates with the human heart kind of takes that shape have you noticed have you noticed why every marvel comic book movie is so similar let's just put it that way they are also very similar but even though they all trace the same journey, you're still punching the air at the end because they've, they've figured out the formula, haven't they? And they run that formula again and again and again and again. There's some kind of happy beginning and then a fall into chaos and then a great hero who steps forward in weakness and the sage comes alongside him and trains him for battle and he fails to begin with. But in the end, he has this epic battle of light versus darkness and he snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. Somebody dies. Somebody always has to die in order to bring about the happily ever after and there's joy and union and consummation and that's the way every single story runs. And I just wonder if you thought about why that is. Why is every story that we tell that kind of resonates with the human heart kind of like that? And I suggest to you it's because we live in a story. That, that actually there is a great myth that has shaped us all. And Jesus is the hero who actually took flesh, who came out of the realm of myth into the realm of history and he actually descended into the darkness, and he took on the great dragon, and at the cost of his own life, he fought the powers of evil to the death, and he rose up again in order to marry the bride, us, and bring in the happily ever after. That's, that's the Christian claim. The Christian claim is that we are living in a story, and that Jesus is the hero of heroes, and that's really what Christianity is. Christianity is connecting with his story and realizing that you're a bit player in his story. I don't know how you conceive of Christianity. Uh, maybe this evening, as you come, you wouldn't uh, consider yourself a, a Christian this evening. Uh, I, I think the average Sydney sider does not look in on Christianity and think, oh, it's this grand you know, fairy tale, and it's this grand adventure story, it's this love story that Christians are swept up into, and it must be wonderful to be a Christian. I think... The average Sydney sider looks at Christians uh, the way I look at Sydney pedestrians. okay? I think the average Sydney sider looks at, at Christians the way I look at Sydney pedestrians. Now, as I describe Sydney pedestrians, of course I'm not describing you. You're probably fine. You're probably great at crossing the road, right? It's just something that I've noticed. Uh, it's, it's something that people notice from other countries when they come to Australia. When sydney side is not when other Australians, not in Newtown, obviously never in Newtown, you guys are free spirits, and you know how to cross the road, but those other idiots out there, there are, there are some people who come up to the, 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 the traffic lights and they look up, and their entire attention is consumed with the little red man. And what stuns me is that Australians will walk up to the pedestrian crossing and they will press the button only once. Stunning self-control, right? To press the button only once. And sometimes people even join the crowd of people. They haven't seen the button being pressed, and they just trust that the button has been pressed. That's incredibly naive and, and wonderful, and, and I warm to that. I think, that's, I think that's a really lovely way to be. I wish I could be like that, right? See, I'm not like that. I, I come up to the pedestrian crossing, and I press the button four, five, six, seven times, okay? I might have just seen you press the button, but I don't know whether you're any good at pressing buttons. You might be a total imbecile at pressing buttons. How do I know, right? I don't trust you, and I'm a very busy man. I've got places to go, people to do. I need to get across that road as quickly as possible. So I'm pressing the button, but I'm not pressing the button in order to change that little man up there. I don't care about that little man up there. I'm pressing the button to change the traffic lights. It's the cars I'm worried about. I want to stop the cars. I'm looking at the cars. I just want to slow the cars down just for a little bit so that I can cross the road, whether that little man is green or whether that little man is red. So I am, I'm the guy brushing past you, you. I mean, I'm not talking about you, obviously. You, you guys, you're grown-ups. You know how to cross roads. I, I understand that. But understand that I'm talking about these zombie-like you know, slaves of the States just looking up at this little red man. Captured by groupthink, I, I brush past them and then I, I do this strange thing of actually slowing down as I cross the road because I, I just want to communicate to everybody just how much time you actually have to cross this road. And it, it takes everything within me not to turn back to the assembled masses and to start preaching to you and to, and to start saying, Look, people, look, it's possible. You can go against the little man in the sky. You can. I'm not getting hit by traffic, I'm not getting hit by lightning, you know, there's no little red man firing his little red laser beams at me, no, I can cross the road and and off I go and I'm at least 20 seconds ahead of you, I'm winning, I'm winning, right? And in my head, there's part of me that's thinking, you know, I envy those guys stuck back at the traffic lights. It must be nice to have so little in your life that you, you can just waste all that time just standing there at the traffic. It must, must, must be nice to be like that. But, but me, I'm too busy, and off I go. And it must be nice to entrust your fate to that little man up in the sky. You know, because you don't have to look at the traffic. You don't have to assess whether it's safe to progress in life. You entrust all those fears to that little man. You let him worry about it. That must be nice. But I'm, I'm not really like that, I've, I've got too many things to do, I'm too hungry for experiences, I'm not really trusting enough, I don't have that much peace in my life, and I envy you to some degree, but really I've got better things to be doing in my life than to be standing stationary, lost in group think, this zombie-like state, looking up at the little man thrust up into the sky who only tells you, no, don't, wait. And I think that's how Sydney siders see Christians, don't you think? I think your average Sydney Sider kind of sees Christians like that? These dead-eyed slaves that we are, these zombies lost in group think, kind of looking up to this little image of a, of a little man thrust up into the sky who tells you, no, wait, don't. And you know, I, I think most Sydney siders they, they don't articulate that they think that you are deluded rubes. They don't don't articulate that most of the time, but I think you kind of feel the sneers, don't you? You kind of feel the sneers that people are getting on with their lives. And they sort of pity you, you Christian who is just a slave of the little man thrust up into the sky. I don't know, is that how you see Christians this evening? Maybe you see Christians as, as those who are just stuck back at the traffic lights when the rest of the world... Is progressing, is hungry for life and freedom, and you just see Christians as as dead-eyed slaves. Well, which is it? Which is it? Tonight, we're going to have a look at, is Christianity this grand story in which the great God stoops down in order to save us and liberate us, or is Christianity just about being a dead-eyed slave of a little man who tells you no? Which is it going to be? To be honest, if it's the latter, count me out. (laughs) I don't want anything to do with Christianity. But if it's the former, I'm in. I'm jumping in with both feet. How about you? Let's have a look at John chapter 13. Let's have a look at it as this story, not of the little man over you telling you no, but of the great God stooping down to save you and liberate you. So here we are in, in John chapter 13. And verse 1 says, it was just before the Passover feast. This is what tells you that we're in a grand adventure story. Because the Passover back in the Old Testament, that was this Old Testament story of liberation, of freedom. The grand adventure in which God's people were saved out of slavery and brought into freedom. And we're being told here that Jesus is inserting Himself into this story and saying, I'm doing that cosmically. I'm going to bring about liberation. I'm going to bring about salvation. I'm going to bring about redemption. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. What we're about to see with this foot washing, it's not just that someone forgot their middle eastern manners and Jesus stepped in, okay? We're not just seeing this tiny little incident in the life of Jesus. What we're seeing is Jesus demonstrating the full extent of what he's about. So as you notice the details of this story, Jesus stepping down, stooping, cleansing, rising back up again. As you see the details of this story, you're actually being told about the grand story, the great salvation, the great drama in which the knight battles the dragon and brings you the happily ever after. Everything you're about to see in this little upper room is telling you a cosmic salvation story. Verse 2, the evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power, and that He had come from God and was returning to God. So, He got up from the meal, took off His outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around His waist. After that, He poured water into a basin and began to wash His disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. I love the way verse 3 leads into verse 4. Did you, did you notice verse 3 is this psychological insight into the eternal Son of God? It's quite a remarkable verse. John knows what the Son of God was thinking. He, he knew that He'd come from the Father and He was returning to the Father. He knew that He was God the Son, full of the Holy Spirit. He knew that he is the heir of the cosmos. Verse 4, so He got up, left the place of honor, took off the robe, the clothing of a king, and he, and he puts on the towel, the clothing of a slave. Doesn't that word, so, blow your mind? Totally blows my mind. Because he is in very nature God, right, so he serves. Like, if you were writing John chapter 13, you'd probably use the word yet at the beginning of verse 4, wouldn't you? You'd probably say, yeah, 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 he's full of all the omnipotent power of God, Yet, he stoops and serves. Isn't, isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? But that's not what it says. He's, he is God the Son. He is the heir of the cosmos, right? He is the one full of the Holy Spirit. He is the cosmic king. So, he gets, our, he gets down from his place of honor, and he expresses his kingliness by being a slave. Bit weird, isn't it? But actually, it kind of makes sense. We, we, we saw last week with Philippians chapter 2 that, you know, if God is a fountain of life, where do you see the fountain expressed most purely? Well, you see the fountain expressed most purely when it is poured out. And where do you see the very Godness of God the Son? You see it as He stoops, serves, suffers, bleeds, dies. So, He got up from the evening meal, the place of honor takes off the robe, the clothing of a king, puts on the towel, the clothing of the slave. And notice all the details, verse 5, he, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You, you kind of don't need those details, do you? But John can't get them out of his head. He was there. He had had his feet washed by the creator of heaven and earth. And he, he could never forget those details. He could never forget the way that Jesus even patted dry the disciples' feet with the towel. Isn't that an interesting detail, just to, just to add in? But there are other details that are, that are not here. There are, there are details that I'm curious about. Are you, are you curious? Here's, here's one detail that's not in here that I'm curious about. I want to know, like, did Jesus, did he kneel down to each of their feet individually and then get up again? Like, did he, did he sort of kneel down and do the washing and then dry the feet? And then to, to get to the next person, did he kind of stand up, pick up the bowl, put the bowl down, and then get down to the next person's feet, and then did he, is that what he did? Or did he kind of just wash someone's feet, and then just do that? And then just do that? I think it's it's probably the latter, isn't it? It wouldn't make sense to get up like 12 times. He's probably shuffling around that room on his knees. God the Son, the maker of heaven and earth, And, and as ridiculous as it was for me to do that, we're talking about our maker, stooping down and doing that how would you feel if you were in the room and there is your maker shuffling around on his knees towards you how would you be feeling i reckon you'd feel like simon verse six he came to simon peter who said to him lord are you going to wash my feet jesus replied you don't realize what now what i'm doing but later you will understand no said peter you shall never wash my feet isn't that what you'd say That's what i'd say all eyes are on Jesus, and everyone's really uncomfortable. They're all kind of going from buttock cheek to buttock cheek, saying, oh, oh, stay away, Jesus, you can't, please, surely, no. And Peter's just voicing what everyone else is thinking. I definitely would have been like Simon. I definitely would have been like, no, no, you can't do this. In fact, I, I had a, an episode just like this happen to me. I was in India once, and um, I was staying in a, a palace um, as, a, as a guest of the Nawab of Paterdi. And uh, a Nawab is like a Maharaja, it's like a, a Lord, so he was kind of a big deal. And uh, for honored guests, they would offer their guests a pedicure. And so on the first day, I was asked, and when would you like your pedicure? <laughs> I said, uh, how's never? Is, is never good for you? <laughs> like, because there's no way I want anyone poking around my carbuncle monstrosities. I, I don't want that, right? And I don't want to have to sit over another human being as they fuss over my stinking, naked feet. Do you want that? I did not want that. I made a big deal out of it, and, and I kind of regret doing that. I just said no, and it caused a massive stir. Maybe I, maybe I just should have had the grace to let her do that, but I didn't want her to do that. But as odd and confronting as it would have been for that household servant to stoop to my feet, can you imagine the Nawab doing that? Can you imagine this Maharaja, this Lord, taking off his robe and putting on the towel and stooping to my... Can you imagine him doing that? Now, can you imagine the God of heaven doing that? But this is what the Christian God is like, okay? I I don't know what picture of God you have this evening, but the Bible's always telling you, you get God wrong all the time. I get God wrong all the time. My default view of God is that He's this monstrous individual, high on power, low on personality, far away, dismissive of me. That's my, that's my default picture of God. And even as a Christian, every day I need to come back to the Bible and be shown Jesus, because Jesus shows me a different kind of God, a stooping God. It's so fascinating. Right before John 13 and right after John 13, Jesus makes sure everybody knows that He is God. Okay, so John 12, verse 45, he says, when anyone looks at me, they see the one who sent me. Right? He's saying, look at me, you see God. That's what he says in John 12, verse uh, 45. And then again in John 14, verse 9, he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And again, he's, like he's before this incident and after this incident, he's saying, you want to see God? Look at me. You want to see God? Look at me. So now with all eyes on Jesus, what does he do? He gets down on his feet and he washes their feet and and gets down on his knees and washes their feet. And Simon, Simon says, Jesus, what are you doing? And really Jesus could look up to Simon Peter and say, Simon, I only ever do what I see God doing. This This is God, right? This servant stooping to your feet, cleanse you to love you that's that that's what god is like okay christianity is not about dead eyed slaves looking up to this little man in the sky who says no right christianity is the great god who stoops down to save you to cleanse you to liberate you why does he do it well jesus says in verse 8 Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. We do need a wash, right? Jesus is not getting down on his knees for his own health. He's doing it for us. He's doing it because we need cleansing, right? Do you feel like you need cleansing? Unless you understand that you need cleansing, you're not going to understand why God would stoop to your feet. But Peter's confronted with the fact of his uncleanness. And that's what makes sense of the whole event. So you're not going to understand Christianity. You're not going to understand Jesus unless you understand there's an uncleanness to you. Do you know that there's an uncleanness to you? I know there's an uncleanness to me. Desperately so. Do you ever just, you know, you're doing the washing up or something, you look out the window and you just think about that thing that you said last week, or maybe it was 10 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever it was, you just ah Our daughter Ruby, she's, uh, she's three years old at the moment, and um, so she's a real chatterbox. She's got, she's got loads of words now, but uh, back in the day, she didn't have very many words at all, and she was just making up words on the fly. And uh, one of the words that she kept on saying was, doy, 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 doy. And we didn't know why she was saying What is she saying dog? Is she saying boy? What's she trying to tell us? And she just keep on saying, doy 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 doy. And then, then one day I was doing the washing up, looking into the middle distance, and she was there in the high chair in the corner of the of the room. And I was thinking about something really stupid that I'd said the, the week before. And I just sigh and say, Dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. And in the corner she says, Doy 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 And I say, like, I guess I must say it a lot, right? <laughs> you know. He's picked it up, right? Do you have those dear, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear? And you just feel unclean, don't you? There's a man I, I, I knew who was a, a counselor. He said he once counseled a man who had made some dreadful decisions in his life that had ruined his marriage, ruined his family, ruined his business. And this man said to my friend, I wish I could take my whole life and put it in a big washing machine and set it on the hottest wash possible till all the grit and the grime is gone. Have you ever wanted that? I've wondered that many, many times. And then I think of a woman I met last year and she came to faith in her 40s and I, and I said, well, what's, what's it like coming to faith later in life? How would you, how would you describe coming home to Jesus? And, and she said, uh, it's like having a shower on the inside. That's a cool image, isn't it? A shower on the inside. Because this foot washing is a picture of the great cleansing that Jesus has come to do. Jesus in a few hours' time after this event, those same hands that were washing feet would be nailed to a Roman cross, and there he was dying as a sacrifice, dying as our substitute, uh, taking on our uncleanness, taking on our sin, burying it in the hellish death that it deserves, and then rising up again to give us a, a new nature, a new life. He died to cleanse us in the book of 1 John chapter 1 it says the blood of Jesus purifies you from all sin that would be nice wouldn't it To be purified from all sin wouldn't it be nice to have the shower on the inside wouldn't it be nice to bundle up your whole life put it in the big washing machine until all the grit and the grime is gone it's real there is a true cleansing and here is Jesus coming to to offer it to everyone in the room if only you'll allow him to get his hands on you, he will cleanse you, right? If only you will allow Jesus to get his hands on you, he will cleanse you. Do you want that? Well, you've got to be like Simon. You've got to, you've got to let Jesus get his hands on you. Then, Lord, verse 9, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He's such an extreme figure, this Simon Peter. He's always going back from one pole to the other. Jesus answered, don't worry, look, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. He's referring to Judas there. and It's just fascinating, isn't it, that he cleans Judas's feet too. He loves Judas. He, he washes the feet of the man who's going to walk all over him. He loves even him. Fascinating so verse 12 when jesus had finished washing their feet he put on his clothes and returned to his place do you understand what i have done for you he asked them well do you do you understand what he's done this isn't just one little incident in the life of jesus this is pointing us to the grand narrative the great story the the adventure where Jesus stoops down into our pit, takes on our dragon on the cross, rises up again to give us the happily ever after. Do you understand what Jesus has done for you? He's got his hands on you, He's loved you the hell and back, He's cleansed you, and He's set you on your feet clean, loved, possessed, belonging. Do you understand what He's done for you? Well, if you do, then verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should... How do you think that sentence should end? Jesus says, I've washed your feet. You should... I wonder how you'd finish that sentence if you were finishing it. I you might expect Jesus to say, I've washed your feet. Now, how about you wash my feet, hey? fair. Fair's fair. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. Okay? I cleanse you, you cleanse me. That doesn't happen, does it? We never read about Jesus getting clean here. It, it, it seems like on this occasion, the disciples are getting cleaner and cleaner, and Jesus is getting dirtier and dirtier, taking their uncleanness on himself. He doesn't say, I've washed you, you now wash me. He says, Now that I've washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. You see? Pass it on. Pass it on. Because you can't pay Jesus back. Do you know that? You can, you can never pay God back for what he's done. You know that, don't you? I hope you know that. It should be the most obvious truth in the world, but Christians are, are, are real idiots about this. We're, we're always thinking, we can pay God back. You're like, with what? He already owns the stuff, right? What are you going to pay God back with? You, know, you never pay God back. You never pay God back. Jesus loves you, washes you, cleanses you, sets you on your feet, and then he says, run along. Share the wealth. Pass it on. It's Lovely, isn't it? Grace runs downhill. Jesus pours himself out to you. And now in his flow, you get to join in the blessed life. Here's the blessed life. Verse 14. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them blessed blessed is a word that just means happy right how do you live the happy life how do you live the happy life you know the lie is that you will be happy if you keep yourself to yourself if you look out for number one if it's up to you right that's the happy life right and jesus comes around the room and he wants to get his hands on you no thanks jesus no thanks no no need no need. I mean, my feet aren't that bad. Just a few odor eaters, that's all I need. I don't, I don't need you, Jesus. I'll sort myself out. I'll sort my life out. It's about me, Jesus. Okay. That's, it might seem like that's the happy life. It might seem like that's the blessed life. It's not. That's a lie. Okay. If you live that kind of life, you will be curved in on yourself more and more and more and more. That's a hellish life, right? That's not the blessed life. What is the blessed life? The blessed life is letting Jesus get his hands on you. Let him poke around the very ugliest parts of you. Let him look into the deepest parts of your soul. Let him cleanse you. Let him set you on your feet. And then with him, go out and live his kind of life. And his kind of life is the outgoing life, right? It's the the poured out life the life of self-giving love. Do you want to do that? Do you want to live the blessed life? Or do you want to live the introspective life? What do, you, what do you want to do? What do you want to do tonight? Because tonight, I'm offering the blessed life. Do you want it? Tonight, I'm offering the Jesus thing. Okay? I don't know what your view of Christianity is. Maybe you think Christianity is just a dead-eyed slave looking up to some little man who tells you no. That's not Christianity. Christianity is the great God who has stooped down to save you, to liberate you, to cleanse you, and to free you into a life of self-giving love. Do you want that? Well, in a second, I'm just going to pray a prayer, and it's a prayer you can pray if you've been following Jesus for many years, but it's also a prayer you can pray if you want to start following Jesus, if you want to get in on this grand love story. The prayer goes something like this. It just says, Jesus, I am sorry for the selfishness in my own heart. I'm sorry for the things that make me say, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. I'm sorry for that uncleanness. But thank you that you came. Thank you that you stooped. Thank you that you went to the cross for me and rose again to give me new life. Jesus, come into my life and help me to live the blessed life of self-giving love. All right? that's, that's what I'm going to pray. And uh, if you want to echo that silently in your heart, that could be a great way of starting a relationship with Jesus. Should we all just bow our heads right now? Let me... Pray for us all. And if you want to make this response to Jesus, you could do so in in words like this. The words are not magic, but here's one way of responding to Jesus. Lord Jesus, I recognize this darkness in me. There is uncleanness in me. I'm sorry. Please get your hands on me. I'm letting you in. I'm letting you in on the dark parts, on the unclean parts. I trust you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising to give me new life. Come into my life and walk with me in a life of self-giving love. Fill me with your spirit. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be my friend.